Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so glad you're with us today. I have, we're, we're going to be departing a bit from what's usual, and so I want to point something out. Many people have actually asked me why Seek Reality covers so many different topics, because a lot of people come originally to, to listen because they've lost a loved one. It's about death to them and about what happens after death. Well, the reality we have discovered is every bit as big and complex as the reality that we think we know now. So our roots here are in afterlife research but once i had used all this direct evidence to pretty much prove to myself that human life continues and actually to learn a lot about how it works i wanted to understand the physics of it and how it fits with what we see around us and what we can figure out about the purpose of human life and the role of consciousness and so on and on so it this this is really like trying ourselves to construct a whole alternate reality which actually exists but science still resolutely resolutely ignores having i have to say having good quantum physics for dummies books arrive within the last couple of decades helped a lot because i never even took the regular physics even in high school that's a little i cared and so it helped a lot to come to understand where that was all coming from because that's actually the physics that applies in the greater reality which is where which is most of reality and all of this all the stuff we've worked looked at and worked on the people who are working in this field you know craig hogan most of all but there are others all of it has made us understand that or strongly suspect that what we think of as reality has to be has to be an artifact of what we experience as the human mind so just as our friend dr r craig hogan told us last fall he, when he, this is a great insight he gave us when he talked about his new book, which is called There is Nothing But Mind and Experiences. More and more, it seems that that's what reality actually is. And what we experience in a very dim way is human consciousness seems to be primary. Now, this is not our discovery. This was discovered by the great quantum physicist. In fact, he got the Nobel Prize for discovering, I think, quantum physics in 1918. Max Planck, he said this a century ago that we can't get behind consciousness. He was right. Consciousness is the base creative force. So all of this is exciting to know, but how do we tie it to the rest of reality? And we can't do it. We're not scientists. There are very few, very few really talented scientists working in this field. One of them is our wonderful, wonderful friend. This is his fifth time with us dr bernardo castrop is coming to us all the way from the netherlands it's it's nice that we have such a small world now but he's been with us so many times because he has come to understand quite independently and in using the scientists lingo and using their methods the fact that consciousness is primary too and i have learned so much from bernardo he's really the only mainstream scientist i think who has anything to talk to us about at this point um, so this is his fifth appearance, and he has officially boggled my mind. So as you'll see when we get into this, he's going to have to lead us because I'm lost, I have to say, but happily, happily so. Bernardo Castrop has a Ph.D. in computer engineering, which includes artificial intelligence and a second Ph.D. Most people never get one. He has two. The second Ph.D. is in the philosophy of mind and ontology, which is the study of existence. You know, a perfect place to be if what you're trying to understand is how consciousness creates everything. And that second Ph.D. makes him, I think, a philosopher as well. So he can research philosophy, I would think, too. Um, but in methods and disposition, he is a scientist. He thinks that way. He and I have had arguments about things based purely on my limited scientific understanding, which is another thing I love about Bernardo. And he has worked as a scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research, which is we know as CERN. And he's written a lot, a lot of academic books and papers on science and philosophy. He's a leader in what he calls the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, which 
as I understand it, is the correct term, we should use the correct terms today, for the notion that reality is essentially mental. This is his fifth time, as I said, and he continues to work to figure out what we also are working out, which is the actual nature of reality. He is brilliant about it, though, because he is trying to do it the hard way, going from the, the clumsy science that now exists. And every time I read what he's worked on, I always know that we have to go back to start using his lingo. So I will try to ask him to explain some of these terms so you'll have them in your mind as well. Today we're going to talk about two classical philosophers, psychiatrists, psychologists, who lived quite a long time ago, actually, and I have, I think in college I read them, but I haven't even thought the names of these people in all this time. He has written two books which are based in their work and dissect them. And I think actually he's right that it's important we see how they led in. Just as just as Max Planck was leading into the notion that consciousness is primary, they led into this work as well. His two books are Decoding Schopenhauer's Metaphysics, The Key to Understanding How It Solves the Hard Problem of Consciousness and the Paradoxes of Quantum Mechanics. All I can say is, wow, because those are the two big problems that scientists, truly big problems scientists now face. And Bernardo's going back and trying to tie someone who didn't even live in the 20th century, never mind the 21st, into what scientists are struggling with now. So that is amazing. The second book is called Decoding Jung's Metaphysics, the archetypal, archetypical semantics of an experiential universe. Bernardo, my mind is blown. Welcome. I'm so glad you're with us. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> it's fun, too. We have a lot of fun together. But these two books, really, frankly, they floored me. They surprised me. I don't think of them as coming from you. And I, I haven't even seen in detail the Schopenhauer book, but I've read what you've written about it. Uh, and I've read the Jung book and made notes, and I made so many notes that it, I confused myself again. So... Um, I, I'm really going to need to take your lead this time even more than I've tried to before. But they, they're very deep dives, as I see it, into the work of, let me just tell everybody, there are two leading thinkers of the past 200 years who especially interested him enough to do what he did. Arthur Schopenhauer was a German philosopher who lived from, get this, 1788 to 1860. And he is going to give us information which helps us solve the hard, by the way, the hard problem, as you, I think, know by now, is um, uh, how matter in your inside your your head how how that matter somehow creates consciousness it doesn't of course and then and and the other thing he's going to help us with is how to make sense of some of the the paradoxes of quantum mechanics which are really blowing people's minds because again consciousness is central and most scientists won't look at that Carl Jung, um, I have, I know I have read, he was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who lived from 1875 to 1961. So he was kind of modern. So as I, as I read that book, are you right, Bernardo, in saying that, that you feel as if the, some of the roots of your own present thinking lies with these two pioneers? Certainly. I think both of them were saying largely the same thing, which is the same thing that many of us today are beginning to converge uh, towards. And this shouldn't be a surprise. You know, whatever the truth is, it's not delicate. Uh, we, we are bang in the middle of it. We may not be able to articulate it, but whatever it, it is, it's not fragile. So it's not a surprise that uh, two leading thinkers of the past have articulated it in their own language. Yeah, which is, as again, um, something Max Planck did as well, only he did it very much more briefly. But nonetheless, the, the words are there. Oh, okay, let's talk briefly about the Schopenhauer book. Um, I don't have it, but just from your commentary, you seem to be really eloquently defending him. Does he need defending? People have been disparaging him because they didn't understand him? Yeah, absolutely. Even in academia, I think uh, the foremost... Uh, um how to say, specialists in Schopenhauerian philosophy alive today have have done great disservice to Schopenhauer. Oh, Lord. They misrepresented and misportrayed him and made him look like a fool as far as metaphysics is concerned. And that's why today he's better known as a as a pessimistic uh, uh, philosopher who 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 had the wisdom to make some 
key statements about you know love and life, but uh, who we didn't understand at all what the nature of the universe is. And I think that is <laughs> that's the opposite of the truth. He understood it better than they did. Oh my word! You you say that there are five things you're trying to accomplish with this book, but the two that stuck in my mind are these. You said you want to place his ideas in the context of quantum mechanics, which didn't exist back then. And you want to re relate his discourse to modern issues emerging in ontology and philosophy of mind, which, again, didn't exist back then. Can you expound on that? Sure. I mean, what, what is the great dilemma in quantum mechanics today? Uh, the dilemma arises from the assumption that matter is primary and yep. everything else can be explained in terms of the structure or behavior of matter. That, that's the unspoken assumption. And then uh, the yep. dilemma arises because with quantum mechanics, what has become now impossible to deny, I would say, impossible for any reasonable person to deny after 40 years of experimentation, uh, it has become clear that uh, matter does not have standalone existence. The, the properties we call material, like uh, mass, charge, momentum, spin, and so forth, these things, they do not exist in and of themselves. Uh, we cannot speak of their existing prior to an observation or a measurement. Uh, well, but if that is so, then that means that matter is not fundamental. It's not yes. primary. Yes. And, and then how, how can everything else be explained in terms of matter if matter is yes. not actually there before you measure? So what Schopenhauer did, uh, uh, he solved this problem before the problem existed. What he said was that, okay, matter is just the appearance of something else. It's the way this something else presents itself to measurement and observation. Matter only comes to existence if that thing, that fundamental thing, is observed, because matter is just the appearance of it, the representation of it. That's the word he used, representation of a Vorstellung in, in, in German. Uh, and what is really out there is not matter. Uh, uh, what is really out there, Schopenhauer called the will uh, which was his term for for uh, uh, mental processes that uh, oh are extended. Oh, my God. Wow. So he got it, too. But he didn't even understand what he was seeing because he didn't. It was it was so it was, this was so early. It was before quantum mechanics, even or before it was accepted widely. Wow. OK. And he, then he, he just followed reason. And, and if you follow reason, <laughs> yes. uh, artificial problems that arise because you've taken a wrong path in your reasoning, uh, these problems disappear before they even <laughs> come into existence. The problem of, of physics, quantum physics today, is the assumption that matter is primary. That's why there are dilemmas. But if you understand that matter is just the appearance of something else, then what quantum mechanics is showing through experimentation is, is completely natural. Of course, matter is not there before you measure. It is the appearance of that thing. And appearances are not there until you look. What is really out there is not physical, it's not material, it is mental. And yeah, Schopenhauer saw it. <laughs> this is so great. I was, I, I just want to cheer when I hear you speaking. I just have to say that. Wow. And and then you say that with you now ontology and philosophy of the mind. Can you describe briefly to people who are cur curious what that actually means to a scientist? Uh, to, to to most scientists, <laughs> it wouldn't oh. mean much because they are not. I don't think they know uh, what this is all about. They think to a woke produces. scientist, to a scientist who really okay. knows what's going on. Okay. Yeah, um, ontology means uh, the study of what is, the the study of what exists. And then you might yes. say, well, isn't what's isn't that what science does? No, no. science studies the behavior of nature, not what nature is. Uh, so ontology is about being, or metaphysics is more the more general term. It's the study of what is. And philosophy of mind is the study of mind in the context of nature. What is mind? Is it primary? Is it is it secondary? Uh, can it be explained in terms of something else? In other words, uh, reduced. Uh, what's the behavior of, of mind in relate to the essence of mind? This is all philosophy of mind. So philosophy of mind and ontology if you take minds to be primary in nature, they boil down to the same thing. It's the study of what is. And what is, is, is mind. Okay. And you have a term also that you use, dual aspect monism. And it, that, that relates to what you just said, right? Yeah. Dual, dual aspect monism is a hypothesis about the nature of reality. And that is that and that it's is all that mind? 
No, no. Dual aspect monism would say we don't know what reality really is, but it oh. presents itself uh, on the one hand as matter and on the other hand as mind. So oh, matter okay. and mind are both explainable in terms of a third unknown thing that we cannot access. Now, this is not what Schopenhauer said, even though many classify Schopenhauerian right. philosophy today as dual aspect monism. Well, this is a kindergarten mistake. It's a childish <laughs> mistake. Wow. Uh, because uh, uh, um, uh, Schopenhauer was very clear that what exists is the will. Uh, so the will or mentation is, is not an aspect. It's not an appearance of something else. It's what there is. And Schopenhauer repeats this dozens of times yes. in one two-volume book. Yeah, okay, it's 1,200 pages in tiny little font. But still, he repeats oh, it geez. dozens of times. He does not leave any possible... Uh, uh, ambiguity uh, in what he's saying. So Schopenhauer was not a dual aspect monism. For him, mind was not just an aspect of something else. Mind or the will is what there is. And matter, only matter, is a representation of mind. Is the just, way it, it is what mind looks like when observed from a certain perspective. Wow, that is brilliant. And that was what he actually said, and he said it uh, 100 and almost 200 years ago? He wow! This for the first time in 1818, so 203 wow. years ago. Two, oh, three! Let's give him the three. Wow, that is so. Uh, it, maybe you'll be able to get him his due in the end when all of this comes plain, and it will. And you'll be part of making it all come plain, and no one will be able to deny it. Um, maybe you'll be able to. That's that's nice to think you might be able to rehabilitate him because he certainly deserves to be considered a pioneer from what you just said. Now, something else you talk about a little bit is panpsychism, which seems also to be something that relates to mind being in some way universal. How is that different from this dual aspect? Uh, there are many different definitions of panpsychism. So however I define it here, uh, somebody somewhere will say, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, uh, I'm, <laughs> Good to I'm, preface it with that, yes. Yeah. I'm going to explain what the most popular understanding of the word panpsychism entails. And I am aware that, uh, for instance, Whitehead, his definition of panpsychism was different than what I'm about to say. Okay. Now, uh, what most philosophers in academia today mean by panpsychism is the notion that uh, mind is a fundamental property of matter. In other words, that all matter has mind, or that all matter is conscious in some simple way. Now, this is not what Schopenhauer or I no. or Jung put no. forward. Uh, uh, what uh, these other people uh, put forward is that uh, matter is in mind. Uh, right. Matter is not minded. It is in mind. Matter yes. is not conscious. It is in consciousness. That's exactly right. Yes. Linguistically, it sounds similar, but it's completely different. Different, 100%. <laughs> okay, so there are people who actually seriously talk about all matter having mind in it. That they sort of completely bass backwards, actually. But it, it, that's there are people who talk like that. Really, in think academia, like that? Uh, in academia today, in the in the world of analytic philosophy, this is a hypothesis that's taken fairly seriously by fairly uh, intelligent uh, people. And there are, you know, technical papers published in respected uh, academic journals that put this hypothesis forward. Yeah. I can't um, get over it's, that. It's strange, but, but uh, it, it, is, it is less strange than materialism, which dominates academia. So, uh, it, yes, it should shock us. But what should really shock us profoundly is that our culture has embraced materialism for over two centuries now uh, uh, or more. Um, it became mainstream in the second half of the 19th century. So let's say at least at least one and a half century. Now, right. That that is really really amazing. And it's amazing that no matter how much evidence there is that it's nonsense, they cling to it. Do you know why they cling to it? And as now as much as ever, there's just no way to dislodge it. Is it really because they're afraid of finding God, which is some people have suggested to me? Why? I don't think why so. did they I do think this? I think to a large extent, it's just a cultural inheritance. I mean, 
the, the mindset, the way of thinking uh, uh, of materialism, uh, which entails the assumptions of materialism, including that there is this thing called matter that is totally separate and independent of mind out there, this begins getting hammered uh, into your head when you go to school, when you're five or six years old. Um, it, and the whole cultural ethos of our Western society, which is now a world society, Western values dominate uh, the yeah. world now, the West, yeah. Western way of thinking, even even India and Japan and China, amazingly enough. Yeah. Um, it, it is so strong that it has created, man, it has manufactured plausibility for what is on the face of it, a, a absurd hypothesis postulated at first to create some room for science in the face of the church so scientists wouldn't be burned to the stake at, at the stake um, so I think it's, it's it's a very very strong cultural inheritance and um, and there are some you know visible uh, individuals who sort of became self-appointed uh, spokespeople of what they consider to be reason um, who invested their entire imago, their entire ego in this notion that materialism is intelligent and all other hypotheses are stupid, gullible, gullible and nonsensical. Um, right. and, and, and that creates a sort of a cultural ethos that makes more reasonable people who want to step back and give this a thought. It creates a, um, an incentive for them to not do this, to just comply uh, with what, you know, the priests of, of, of supposed reason uh, are saying. So it, I think it's a cultural dynamics um, which reflects... Big time, yeah. Yeah, it, re it reflects an inability to think more deeply and more objectively about things. But um, yeah, it is where we are today as a civilization. And it's why you have things like panpsychism, because it, that, that's just nonsensical why that would happen. And yet... It's a, a safe way for people who are trying to keep their academic careers to talk about it, I guess. That's There's no true. other I mean, reason to do this. Materialism brings you to such insoluble problems when you're yes. really trying to make sense of what's happening, not only of scientific experimentation in laboratories, but of of your thoughts, of your feelings, of uh, the experience of color, of the experience of having a bellyache or tasting a strawberry, it becomes <laughs> so insoluble under materialist assumptions when you face these so-called problems um, that uh, in comparison to that, um, things that our intuition tells us, well, this, this makes no sense, uh, a brick yes. in the wall of my house is not conscious, but in view of the insoluble problems of materialism, people feel forced to explore yes. these paths because the, the alternative doesn't bring us anywhere unless you backtrack all the way and you give up on the very notion of matter as something separate and, and independent of mind. And it's very difficult to take that many steps back when your whole culture is saying, no, no, matter is the real reality. Yeah. How do, how do you solve that? There's a way to solve it. But you're right. I mean, they're so committed to it over such a long period. Um, it's essentially, 200 years of scientific progress would have to be rolled back and done over again from a, from a more correct perspective. I don't think they feel they even can do that now. But that's the thing. That's the impression. And it's a, it's a false impression um, that we would have to revise all of science if it really? turns out materialism is not true. Absolutely. We okay, would have to revise Wait. nothing. Nothing. None of true science would need to be revised because science is the study of nature's behavior, not the study of what nature is. If tomorrow it turns out that materialism is wrong, objects will still fall to the ground if you drop them. Okay. The law of gravity will still be there. Uh, uh, the stars will still shine in the night sky. The, these are the ways nature behaves. The, nature's behavior appears to us in that way. And we have managed to model nature's behavior according to certain mathematical equations in order to predict what, what nature will do next. None of this depends on a particular opinion about what nature is. Whatever, okay. whatever it is, it behaves the way it behaves. And that's what science is all about. Science did not need materialism to get to where it is now. Um, it may have helped the psychology of scientists to feel more detached from their experiments if they adopted materialism. But this is a psychological effect. It's in no way an objective scientific or philosophical need. Um, if tomorrow we adopt idealism, 
all the science proved by experiment will stay in absolutely intact. And that's what people need to understand, because in their minds, they have this fallacious conclusion that, well, but if materialism is wrong, then it, it, it cannot be wrong, because then all of science would be invalid. And look, we have computers, we have vaccines, we, yes. we have all medicines and all these things that will not cease to work. Well, of course, they will not cease to work. They work because they know how nature behaves. Yes. But mind may behave in exactly the same way. And that's the point. The, I, 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 you're, you're obviously right, and I'm very glad you feel that way because um, I'm trying to understand the mind of a, of a poor scientist who's devoted his career to all of this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like having the wrong politics in a very politically charged environment. You, you have to adopt whatever everybody else has adopted, even if you don't agree with it. And what you're saying is when they're actually forced to confront it, that it won't be difficult to separate the genuine science that's always been done without having materialism affect it from the dead ends like panpsychism and whatever else. So that's very encouraging to me, and I hope it is to listeners that that we haven't we aren't going to have to ditch it all and start over. We can be very productive in what we're doing now, and we haven't even gotten to to our, our poor friend you who I made so many notes on but uh this is i think a very important set of things for people who are not used to thinking in this way to begin to understand and think about because this is affecting so deeply and as you point out it's cultural in so many ways our philosophy i mean the the, the religion is something that people think is so totally different but actually the basis of religion is just in the same way as the basis of science is real. There are there are real roots to what we've built religions around. It's just that the religions are wrong, but the, the roots are right. And we aren't going to have to throw away God anymore than we're going to have to throw away, um, you know, as you say, computers. It's just that we have to start trying to understand what's real, which is why we call this program Seek Reality. And that's what we're trying to do now. I'm trying to think how to how to cover about 80 pages of things in a few minutes. You touched on mathematics, and that's one thing I'd like to ask you about. I mean, I'm allergic to mathematics, which is why I never took physics either. Um, but it's, it's interesting. When I was years ago watching some program on Channel 2, which is the educational channel in the United States, some young scientists said, for some reason, we can use math to study science. And those words, for some reason, stuck in my head because very recently I had asked um, with my Algebra 2 teacher before I decided to give up Algebra 2 and everything that was mathematical, is, is math an invented or a discovered science? She said, well, it's invented. I said, invented? I don't have to learn it then. And I never took another math course. And so then I thought, if it's invented, how come we can use it to study science? Is that a stupid question to study you know, physics and so on? How stupid no, is that question? It's not stupid at all. It's a profound question that was first stated um, in, in a formal way by a physicist called uh, Eugene Wigner in 1960 uh, in a paper. I will paraphrase the title because I don't remember every word, but it, it, the title meant something like this, uh, the astonishing effectiveness of mathematics for describing the behavior of nature. Um, oh, right. Because what Wigner realized is that uh, Mathematics is based on what's technically called axiomatic thinking, which is just you know, sophisticated words to say that uh, it, it's based on assumptions that we make, but we can't prove. Um, and these assumptions are the assumptions for the common person, the assumptions of Aristotelian logic, that if one thing is equal to a second and the second is equal to a third, then the first has to be equal to the third or that uh, things are either true or false. They cannot be true and false at the same time. These are things we take for granted. Our mind yes. tells us it has to be like this. It makes no sense for it to be any different. And guess what? You can write a list of these uh, axioms that uh, base mathematics. Uh, th th there is more nuance to this. The project of you know, basing mathematics on axiomatic logic has failed in the early 20th century. So things are not as crystal clear as I'm saying, but it's true enough when I, what I'm saying now. It's true, it's true enough for, to make the point I'm going to make. Um, so the question that Wigner had was, well, why would our own assumptions, what our minds think is most natural, why should that match 
the way nature behaves. Yes. Because, you know, uh, we are we are apes. We are monkeys evolved on a no, uh, <laughs> no little right. planet on on, on on a periphery of a common galaxy amongst uh, I don't know how many other galaxies. Why would these monkeys come up with a way of thinking uh, 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 who, whose most natural and intuitive assumptions actually work to describe nature? Uh, he called it a miracle. He uses the word miracle 12 times uh, in that paper. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and it's a realization among scientists that uh, why is that? Why is our way of mathematical thinking, which obviously arises in our minds, it's a mental thing, it's our own intuitions. Why should that work so extremely well down yes. to a number of decimal places uh, uh, to describe the behavior of nature? It, this has been a mystery uh, for for decades at least, and it's a mystery you cannot solve under materialist premises. Absolutely. You're right. You're totally right. But it makes perfect sense when we understand that mind is the basis of reality because, um, you know, mind thinks that way too. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for that. I never even heard anybody say any reason, give us any reason why scientists would even notice or care about what to me was a profound discovery and I was not 20 years old yet. But <laughs> but the, th the thing is, it, it, it seems to me nevertheless that others must have talked about that since he put out that paper. You know about it. How has science reacted to that as a community? Well, by and large, most practicing scientists, and I, and I say this to honor them, these are the people who are laboring away in laboratories instead of talking to the press and putting down religion. Um, <laughs> yes. the, the latter are not scientists right. <laughs> in, That's right. in my book, in my book. Uh -huh. but the real scientists who are making progress, progress and laboring away, um, they don't need to make sense of this question because, you know, they can come up with a mathematical theory, a hypothesis, and they, they test that against experiments. And if it works, great. That's all it takes. That's all you need <laughs> okay. to develop technology, to develop medicine, to produce the next uh, mobile phone. Uh, um, so scientists, real scientists, are a very pragmatic bunch. There is a lot of engineering mentality that yeah. goes underneath what scientists uh, are doing. Um, and, and I think that's laudable. Now, uh, for philosophers who are looking at what reality is in and of itself, as opposed to how it behaves, um, then Wigner's miracle is, is, is very relevant because yes. if the world, if the universe is really material in the sense of being completely different and in, independent of mind, then why would the natural intuitions of mind match the way matter behaves? It makes no sense, but it yes. does make sense. And this is a contribution by Carl Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, um, uh, it does make sense if the world itself is mental, because then uh, what feels natural to our minds, in other words, our archetypal ways of thinking in Jungian terminology, um, simply reflect the normal templates, the, the normal regularities or the preferential ways that mind behaves. So we, we experience that directly in our mathematical intuition and the world matches our intuitions because the world, too, is mind. It is mental. It's a segment yes. of mind dissociated from us, but it is, too, behaving according to the same archetypal patterns that govern our emotions and our intuition. Therefore, it, it only makes sense that the mathematics that arises from our logical intuition matches the way the world behaves. So for, for philosophers, this is very relevant. Yes. Wow. It's just unfortunate we aren't all thinking in the same, at least we don't have to think in the same terms, but we, we don't all understand and perhaps share a broader understanding of what reality is because that's, that is for someone trying to understand what really is going on. It is frustrating. We have all these religious thoughts. We have, we have other people who are doing nothing but being philosophical. We have, as you point out, practical scientists. We have other scientists who are, are basically also engaging in their own religion because at the base of it is materialism or, or atheism. That's their religion and nobody can touch that. There's so many different ways of thinking when it, it seems to be kind of productive. Don't you think that we aren't more talking about the same basic understanding? I mean, how do you reconcile this in your work? 
I think our culture is uh, has has a, a tendency to get lost in abstraction. We we have somehow come to associate truth with complexity. We think that uh, whatever is oh, okay. uh, the facts of the matter, whatever is the case, gotta be very complex, and that only some very very smart people using some very very sophisticated instruments can figure out what is really going on. Um, it, I think this is a cultural artifact, but it's such a strong one that we've come to associate, again, truth with complexity. Um, I think people in the Hindus Valley three and a half thousand years ago already figured it out and they didn't need <laughs> yes. very sophisticated computers and, and telescopes and microscopes and particle accelerators, which is a particular, a particularly close uh, technology to me personally because I worked in one for years. Yeah. Um, um, but so all of this complexity is necessary for us to really be, be able to predict nature's behavior with fine accuracy. For that, you need complexity because you're basically building a sort of a simulator of nature that will give you answers faster than nature's behavior will, 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 will give you the answers. Like, will this building collapse? You want to answer that before the building collapses, right? So you need sophistication for this predictive power that science and technology uh, have given us. But I don't think you need this sophistication to have a pretty close intuitive idea uh, of what is true. I think we make the problem a lot more complicated for ourselves. We get lost in all kinds of theoretical abstractions and conceptual entities or oh, hierarchies yes. of conceptual entities. And let me give you examples of that. Subatomic particles, field, so field is a big one. Field is a big conceptual entity and we love to get lost in all that. <laughs> or even consciousness, the most concrete thing possible, you know, the one given of existence, the one thing you know by direct acquaintance, even that has been turned into an abstraction. People are now saying, well, consciousness is electromagnetic fields or consciousness. Oh, is, Lord. I mean, it, <laughs> it is... It is, how do I describe this without sounding uh, cruel? It's okay um, to be cruel. That's it, okay. It would, it would be funny if it weren't tragic. Oh, that's so true. Because it is tragic. So many people are so confused still by the fact that scientists are off on these tangents, which maybe will help them build a better computer, but will not help people better learn how to live, live and understand their lives. Let's talk a little bit about consciousness, because um, this is something Jung called uh, psyche. It was the same word, right? How did he see consciousness? What did he think of it? First, we have to get you know, past the, 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 the language barrier. Jung used the word Bewusstsein, which is directly translated as consciousness. Okay. He used it in a very specific manner, in a restrictive manner. What we today would refer to as phenomenal consciousness or experience or just consciousness, the fact that we experience qualities. Uh, we refer to it as consciousness today. For Jung, consciousness was less than this. For Jung was not only what we experience, but what we both, one, experience, and two, know that we experience. In other words, the experiences okay. we can report, that we can tell to ourselves in the mirror, I am having this pain, therefore I am conscious of the pain. But if you're actually having the pain without knowing that you are in pain, and this happens a lot, especially with men, um, then for Jung, although you are experiencing the pain, then that pain is unconscious. Uh, for instance, most of us uh, are not uh, explicitly aware of our breathing, of the feeling of air flowing in and out, the, the dilation of our rib cage and the movement of our diaphragm. Um, but we are experiencing it at all times. But most of the times we don't know that we are experiencing our breathing. So in the modern use of the word consciousness, in the sense of phenomenal consciousness, we would say it, breathing is conscious because we are experiencing it at all times. You know, nothing has cut um, the, the nerves going from our lungs and, 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 and right. ribcage to our brain. We are experiencing our breathing, but we are not always aware that we are breathing. So uh, in modern terms, we would say we are conscious of the breathing, but we are not metaconscious 
of the breathing. In Jung, he would say um, that breathing is most of the times unconscious, and it's conscious only when I tell myself I am breathing. You okay. see? So, I see. Uh, th- okay. So that's well, so- why he talks about the unconscious and consciousness. Both are psychic. For him, both are part of the psyche. So what is the psyche for Jung? The psyche is everything that is experiential, that involves experience, but only a part of it is metaconscious. In, in other words, only, a, only of a part of it are we aware that we are experiencing. So I, I, awareness is something which um, you and I have so much more to talk about, and we're almost coming to the end of our time here today. So we're going to do this again very soon. I hope you don't mind. Um, because there's so much more I wanted to talk about. We never even got to today, like synchronicities, which are something I'm very interested in as well. But sure. but let's carry forward uh, this then. The, ter- the word awareness, many people don't – I don't think it's a very we, – we use it all the time. I'm aware of this or that. But, but it's very imprecise. How would you di- di- differentiate it, say, from various forms of simple consciousness, which, which is has, as you point out, a number of complex – processes or meanings well i don't think it matters much how we choose to use the words as long as we are clear about what we do mean when we use the words Um, and it's important that we don't get lost and misinterpret someone and misrepresent someone uh, because we just attribute a different meaning to the words that they use uh, than the meaning they attributed themselves I think that's the only key. So I don't mind that people use the word consciousness when they mean metaconsciousness. Many neuroscientists do it to this day. Yes. Um, so long as they specify clearly what exactly it is that they mean by it. Now, Jung was not an analytic philosopher, so there is no text by Jung in which he explicitly says what he means by consciousness. But you can reconstruct that uh, without ambiguity if you take the totality of his writings into account. So for me, what is important is that we know what he meant and that we know what we mean, however, whatever words we choose to use. One of the things that is important about the word awareness is that it seems to be confused by a lot of uh, sort of in our favorite magazine, my favorite magazine is Scientific American. That's where I met you, and it's where – I mean it's sort of like a humor magazine to me still because so much of what they are doing is so clueless. And that's a, I know that's cruel too, but you, you said something cruel. I could say it too. It's really funny but tragic. They keep trying to say we're go- these, these, this artificial intelligence is going to become conscious. How will we know it? Well, what they really seem to be talking about is more awareness, that it will have a sense of being. That, that we think of as human. And there's just no way, of course, that matter is ever going to give rise to that. It's such a horrible, sad waste of a dead end for so many people. You know, the editors of Scientific American, they, they, they cannot be judges and referees of what the science community is saying. It, uh, no. All they have to make sure is that uh, their content reflects to the best of their knowledge uh, what the scientific community is thinking, even if it is polemical. So I wouldn't blame Scientific American for No, this. I love I, it, actually. I love the magazine and I love the editors. I mean, they allow you to, to publish some things there, which the people reading may not realize just how groundbreaking what you do really is in terms of the history of traditional science. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely a new, a whole new earth and sky. And, and they allow that. So I give them a lot of respect for that. Yeah. So and I, I don't think they are at fault, for instance, if they uh, publish things related to this absurdity of artificial consciousness or consciousness <laughs> right. uploading, all this nonsense uh, that right. we see around. Because yes. unfortunately, there are people who have some measure of respect in, in the scientific community today who are spilling this nonsense. And, 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 and I tell you where, where I think this is coming from. Um, this is a, when it comes to consciousness, um, our intuitions of plausibility, our sense for what is plausible and what is implausible fail. And they fail because there is nothing in materialism the materialist way of thinking that can account for experience, for for consciousness. Yes. So we feel forced to explore the absurd because 
you know, if materialism is right, then I'm forced to go into absurd, down absurd paths because there is no other way to even try to make sense of it. So right. our, our intuitions of plausibility <laughs> fail. And I tell you, it doesn't fail anywhere else. For instance, um, if I am running, I think I, I used this metaphor with you before, but I love it. So I'll do it again. Okay, go ahead. Um, if I'm running a simulation of kidney function on my computer, I can run a simulation that is accurate down to the molecular level about what kidneys do. And I can run that on my computer. So I have a perfectly accurate simulation of kidney function and bladder function in my computer. It tells me many true things about the behavior of kidneys and bladders. Now, that doesn't mean that my computer will urinate on my desk. Because That's right. a, a simulation yes. of a phenomenon is not the phenomenon. It's a simulation thereof. And now it's completely obvious to all of us when it yeah. comes to kidney function. If I simulate it, it doesn't mean my computer will pee. Uh, it just <laughs> means that it's a simulation. Right. But right. because we cannot even begin to account for consciousness under materialism, we think that a simulation of brain function is yes. conscious. Now, this is as, I submit to you, this is exactly as absurd as to think that the computer will pee if I simulate kidney function in it. Yes, but totally this, brilliant. Yes. Uh, but in, otherwise, intelligent people feel compelled down these paths of stupidity uh, because uh, the, the, the gaps of materialism seem to force them down these roads. And then it plays into their psychology. You know, Freud talked about uh, women have, having pennies and envy. I submit to you that the many men in the world of technology have womb envy. That's right. What, what they want is to produce and bring to existence a living, <laughs> conscious being. So uh, the, this, the, the absurdities <laughs> of materialism sort of give legitimacy to this psychological complex. <laughs> and, I and love then it. That we, is so brilliant. Yes. yes. And, and it affects our entire culture. I mean, otherwise, fantastic series like Black Mirror, uh, which is cinematographically speaking, technically speaking, it's an extremely well done series. But the philosophical content is beyond stupid. And <laughs> But the problem is that uh, it is manufacturing oh. a cultural sense of plausibility for absurdity in our culture. So now we think a lot of young people grow up to think that, you know, maybe by the time I am old, I can upload my consciousness onto the That's Internet. Right. Oh, well, yes. OK, well, go oh, ahead yeah. thinking that. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a problem. We, we have embraced stupidity in the realm of what we consider plausible. Oh, Brilliant. That We're going to end it on that note. We literally have run out of time. I am so sorry, but, but I'm going to have you back hopefully sooner than six months because there's so much I still want to talk about just from what I intended to talk about today. But um, I appreciate more than you can possibly know the fact that you're willing to talk to people who are not scientists and help them understand, as you do always so brilliantly, how this really works. Thank you so much, Bernardo. My pleasure to be here, Roberta. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. And and uh, this is, again, Dr. Bernardo Castrop, and his, just go to bernardocastrop.com. That's his website. Very simple. Everyone, this has been Seek Reality. Very quickly, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm so glad you were here today. Next week, our guest is going to be Father Nathan Castle, who will be here for the third time. Just very quickly, Nathan, if, any, if you all remember, is a Catholic Dominican priest in for He's been one for four decades. It's his life, and he now lives and works in a community in um, in Tucson, Arizona. But he has, for the past more than two decades, been helping people who are stuck in the process of transitioning to the afterlife, helping them cross over. And he wrote a book, an amazing book called Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over. His sequel is out now, and we're going to be talking about it next week. This is all real. It's true. This man is, is still allowed to be a Catholic priest, and he is doing cutting-edge, amazing work in the area of rescue, rescuing stuck souls. So 
I give a hand to the Catholic Church. I give a big hand to Dr. Nathan, Father Nathan. You're going to just love him. He'll be next here next week. And just quickly, this week, we've been talking with the wonderful, fabulous young Dutch expert on consciousness, Dr. Bernardo Kastrup. This was his fifth, but it will not be his last time with us. He, every, he does this every time. I know I cannot possibly do a sensible interview because I don't really understand what we're going to talk about. And he makes it simple. He does it. He just did it for the fifth time. And I would, thought I was really up a creek this time bernardo is a very big seek reality crowd pleaser everyone everybody i hear from people after every time he's been on and the reason is simple because he does this he makes it simple and entertaining to understand some of the most complex concepts <laughs> he i think uh i uh, by the way and I, I, there's so many things i wrote that i want to talk about and i can't so let's just summarize this his second PhD defense is a very quick way for you to understand what's going on at the cutting edge of understanding what reality is all about. He is the leader there. I believe he will eventually get a Nobel Prize. I'm sorry, Bernardo, I'm going to say it again. A Nobel Prize as the creator of a, of a fundamental consciousness-based theory of everything because, in fact, that's what's behind it all. And he is doing a beautiful job. But if you go and listen to his PhD defense, it takes an hour. It's worth every minute of it. And it's now it's on his website. You don't even have to go looking for it. Go to bernardocastrop.com, put aside an hour, listen to his PhD defense if you haven't heard it because it is absolutely brilliant. He makes all of this seem simple. The books we've talked about today are calling are called De Decoding Schopenhauer's Metaphysics, The Key to understanding how it solves the hard problem of consciousness and the paradoxes of quantum mechanics. And now, actually, I understand that, which I didn't before, so that's great. And also decoding Jung's metaphysics, the archetypical semantics of an experiential universe. Again, that's what, frankly, that's what um, um, uh, Craig Hoden was talking about, wasn't it? He said there's nothing but mind and experiences, and that's exactly, apparently, what Jung realized at least a century ago. So all of these, this is coming together finally. People are coming together and understanding, beginning to understand what's true. I can't wait to see what Bernardo does next. So we, we will quickly be posting when he'll be back. So just please stay tuned. And there's no more time at all left. So I'm just going to say, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy. Please make the most of this coming week in our one reality. Always knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being. And you, most of all, in, the, in all of reality, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.